How do people change their hearts and minds? What moves us to shift our political worldviews, transcend extremism, and make other kinds of transformative change? That is the $64 million question that gave birth to Reckonings. And if you'd like me to do an episode that just responds to that question, let me know. All I need is one email or tweet or singing telegram to let me know that you want an episode summarizing everything I've learned from Reckonings about how people change, and I'll make it. In the meantime, I've been doing a lot of interviews where I talk about what Reckonings has taught me about how people change. To check out those interviews, go to reckonings.show slash press. And in this Reckonings bonus episode, we're going to hear one of my favorites of those interviews, my interview on Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. So with that, Reckonings presents Inflection Point, featuring yours truly, talking about what I've learned from Reckonings, and also getting a little personal. So where did you grow up? I grew up in the North Bay. Of California? Of California, yes. Did that influence the way you think about the world, um, do you think? Yeah. My mom is a yoga instructor. My dad is in technology. I'm a Mexican Jew. I was raised very much, uh, you know, Spanish was my first language. And my mom as an artist would always kind of take us to every single museum within a 25-mile radius of wherever we were traveling. I feel like grew up in an area and in a family that was definitely very much about being open and available and uh, thinking freely and asking questions. And Judaism also as kind of a practice of asking questions, right? There's kind of like the reinterpretation and re-reinterpretation of every single, you know, thing in, in Jewish history. It's kind of like we continue to ask questions about the same old things forever and ever and ever. I think I've just been aware of my evolving consciousness from a young age. I mean, I remember in um, second grade waiting for the school bus for second grade. And I remember thinking, you know, last year I didn't know anything. Like last year was first grade, I didn't know anything. Like now, like now I really know what's up. You know, I'm going into second grade. And then having that same experience going into third grade and having that experience enough times that I was like, wait a second, I'm noticing a pattern here. Maybe I don't actually know everything there is to know now that I'm going into fifth grade. Like maybe my mind is actually just in a process of changing and growing and evolving. And that stuck with me. So this concept of how people change their hearts and minds, yes. I mean, why why is that something you decided you really wanted to explore? Yeah, so that was, you know, early through my earliest experiences with activism and social change, you know, in college and early into my professional life, the, the question would always come up, you know, am I changing anyone's mind? You know, am I actually moving anyone on climate change or mandatory minimums or whatever issue I happen to be focused on at the time, which then, of course, begs the question, you know, how do people actually change their hearts and minds? And that question just kind of became a little bit of a of a fascination of mine. But I almost didn't even know what to, like, what am I even researching here? Like, what's the search term? Am I Googling worldview transformation? Is that even a thing? Like, I know behavioral economics is a thing, but I'm not looking to find out what makes people floss their teeth more often. You know, I'm looking to find out, you know, what moves people in, in, in fundamental ways. And 
it finally just kind of occurred to me that that question might be really powerful to manifest in the form of stories of people who have made these kinds of transformative change, you know, as a podcast. And so that's that's where reckonings comes from. As a, it is, it is an exploration of the question: How do people change? And 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 really, kind of more specifically, how do people change in ways that connect to or scale into broader social and political change? And so, when you think about your role in bringing this understanding to light, I mean, how do you think of yourself? I mean, a mirror actually is very apt. That's really what I'm doing for the person I'm interviewing. I'm just being a gentle. I I, I deliberately don't do interviews in person because a lot of what I'm asking people, I'm asking people to talk about some really sensitive stuff. Sometimes, some, like it's some sometimes it's the thing that they are the least proud of, you know, the thing that they are really res- reckoning with. And it's it, I, I find it more helpful if I can just kind of be a little voice in their head, you know, that holds up a, a, a mirror to them such that they can just see clearly what they have done, the impact that they may have had on other people, and then how they have learned from that and grown from that. I want to make an uncomfortable experience like a tiny bit more comfortable, just like a tiny bit, so you can just hang out in it longer and like and speak from that place. From the standpoint yeah. of the listener or the person who you the are The person telling to? the story. Mm-hmm. The listener, uh, are we just going to keep taking the mirror metaphor everywhere? We might. I mean, yeah, the listener, there is kind of a, maybe like a collective mirror of like us beholding our own capacity to change. That's certainly part of what I'm doing because I believe that we can you know, at least even just for me personally in producing the show, it's like, what what does it do to us to wander through the world with the belief that the people around us can change? Just creates more room for new things to happen that haven't happened before. Have you ever wanted to turn the mic on yourself? I mean, is there a reckoning of uh, your own that you I have been that wanting to explore? So intimidating. It's amazing that no one. I've been interviewed a, a little bit, a couple times. And it's it's amazing to me that no one has asked me the question of what I'm reckoning with, which I dread, which is so amazing to me because or just hysterical to me because, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, that's what I'm asking my guests to do. But I'm kind of just in total awe of all of my guests. Uh, I think what they do is so hard. It's like basically asking you in some ways to have like a public therapy session. I mean, you're just letting out the hardest things. Um, have I wanted to turn the mic on myself? No. That sounds really scary, <laughs> which is part of why I'm so in awe of my guests. Well, what but, are you reckoning? So therefore, you're going to ask me the question. What are you reckoning right. with? Uh, um, what I am reckoning with is, put really simply, my relationship with productivity. It took me a long time to understand what I want to do. And so I feel like I've wasted all this time. And I have all this kind of old like regret and and so and so and so therefore, like I must use all of my time, you know, super productively. And so I just kind of am in this tug of war with time, and it's I just hold my time accountable to I mean, even just my understanding of what productive even means, it just it prevents me from 
really just kind of enjoying being inside of and experiencing my life is what it's preventing. It's and and it and it became much more apparent to me once my daughter was born. Like I thought she was going to start challenging me when she turned thirteen. It started immediately. It's like. Second she came out of the womb, she was like, let me hold up a mirror to you, mom, and show you how addicted you are to crossing things off your list of things to do. Because the second I need to put, like, need something from you, you get, you have a really hard time, like, diverting from whatever your plan was for what you were going to do in the next 10 minutes or the entire day. You know, so it's just become that much more apparent to me as a mom. And I feel I am reckoning with, I mean, I, I guess it's also just the way I relate to and inhabit my life. And I would I, I am wanting to feel less like I'm struggling against my life or struggling against time and more in a experience of, of gratitude and awe for my life. Well, let's talk about some of the people that you talked to on <laughs> Reckonings. Okay. I would like to start with your episode 19, which is about violent white extremists, because that well, we can't, I mean, we can't walk away from it. So in this episode, you talk with two different men, Jesse yes. and Frank. Yes. Why don't you tell us a, a little bit about each of those guys and then yeah. we'll play a clip. So Frank is a former white supremacist. Jesse is a former jihadi extremist. And I weave their stories together. And part of the reason I do that is because, I guess on the one hand, we kind of think of those ideologies as somehow kind of like opposite or something. Um, but you get to see how when you need something, when you are just feeling broken and don't have many options and, you know, it's like you're going to reach for heroin or alcohol or white supremacy or jihadi, or whatever it is that helps you cope. You know, and either one of them could have gone in the other direction. And there are times in the episode where you may not even be able to distinguish between their voices, but that's kind of part of the point. So this is when Frank, he just got out of jail. He He's looking for a job. He can't find a job. He has swastika tattoos all over him. And through a friend, he manages to get a gig at a trade show with a Jewish antique dealer. And the Jewish antique dealer knows that Frank is a neo-Nazi, but he says, you know, he doesn't care what Frank believes as long as he doesn't break the furniture. And so this clip picks up right after Frank has worked this gig at the trade show with this Jewish antique dealer. And this guy, Frank, is the basis for the yes. character that Ed Norton plays in American, American History X. Yes. 1998, for those yeah. of you who are wondering <laughs> when did that movie come yeah. out. Yeah. So if you've seen that movie or if you go see that movie, that gives a instantaneous visual yes. on what we're talking about here. Yes. He gave me a ride home that night. And when he gave me the ride home, and then as he's dropping me off, he just goes, hey, what do you do for a living? And I said, I don't do anything. He goes, well, why don't you come work for me? And I'm looking down. I have my Doc Martens on, my red laces, which meant I'm a neo-Nazi. And I keep looking down at the boots as he's talking to me, this Jewish man. And I'm trying to hide the boots underneath the under part of the seat. I'm just like looking at him like, Thank God this human being is in my life. It's fear. I was full of fear. I was full of absolute fear uh, for everything. And so I got with a group of people who also were fear fearful people. They're fearful they're losing their homeland or going to lose their women to the black man. I mean, you name it. 
in my fear, I felt made me weak. And so what they did is they turned my fear into an anger. And they made it to where it was a, a, just my strong point now. I was completely embarrassed of my beliefs. I was wrong, and I've been wrong for the last seven years of my life. I've been completely wrong. This is all bullshit. I believed in something I was willing to die and kill for, something that is bullshit. I had so much seniority in this group. That seniority was important to me because I had nothing in this world. Like I cut everything and everybody that was not part of the movement out of my life. So that's all I have. So the car ride's coming to an end and he drops me off. And he just goes, I'll see you Monday, right? my pay and I, I went home and I could not wait to get home and get them boots off my feet. Like my whole image of me is gone and I got to build something new. So for this episode, the, the overarching question that you ask is, what happens when we look past ideology? Ah, uh, yes. And I mean, the, you know, this guy that gave him a job, this Jewish guy uh, right. that gave this neo-Nazi with swastikas all over himself yeah. a job. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of incredible. It's completely incredible. It's completely incredible. I mean, it's both incredible that he was willing to do that. And it's, and it's also incredible how much that does that how how much a gesture like that can do and yeah it poses the question back to us you know if we were that jewish man would we have given frank a job i mean even less than that like giving someone a job even talk to people being willing to talk to people so yeah it's it's amazing what a gesture can do and 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 yeah i i take that back you know to are, are we willing to <laughs> let alone give the person a job, just let the bad guy change. I mean, one of the things that this, that this episode made me think about, and even just that clip, is the responsibility of the person who is going to change or wants to change or maybe doesn't even know yet that they want to change mm. and that it has to be a, a two-way street, mm -hmm. right? So there's the, there's the input from mm. someone showing compassion, mm -hmm. but then there's how is that received like how how was he in that place at that time right. to be able to accept the work yeah you know even if he had reservations about whether or not he would get paid which is right. part of what we didn't hear well and it's a it's a gradual so frank's transformation process actually started in jail when he started playing sports with black people and started getting to know black people really for the first time in his life and it was coming from that experience and the confusion that that brought up of like, wait, actually, black people are fine. You know, that he had this experience of generosity from a Jewish person. And that 
just kind of sealed the deal in terms of revealing to him the absolute bankruptcy of his ideology. And so it is, it is, it, it was a gradual thing. And that, and, but, but yes, that, that is kind of what put him in the position. It's like, well, wait a second, you know, because you go through this process of like, okay, fine, black people are fine, but Jewish people. And it's like me with the school bus. After having enough experiences of seeing yourself repeat the same pattern, you start to wonder, is there a pattern here? You know, am I going to just say, okay, fine, Jewish people, but then the next person? Or am I finally going to say, actually, maybe there is something fundamentally wrong with the way that I have been seeing the world? So on this topic of domestic terrorism and white supremacism and the attacks in El Paso and Dayton and Gilroy, and you, you reference in this episode the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh-huh. And that one of your characters, what if it was Frank or Jesse? It was Frank. It was Frank, yeah. So Frank, the same, same fellow, has insight into the bomber. Yes. Timothy McVeigh. And so he wants to go and talk to the FBI yes. about that. So tell, can you just share a little bit about what happens? Yeah. He watched the bombing or he watched kind of footage from the bombing on TV. And it was a it was one scene in particular of a firefighter carrying, I think, a very young girl who looked like she might have been killed. And he just realized, like, I actually understand where this bomber was coming from. And I need to help. I need to use that understanding I have to help us prevent this from happening. So that's when he he showed up at the FBI and he basically he kind of like I think they at first kind of were a little disarmed, but he showed up. He was like, I, you know, I need to talk to you about the bombing. Like, no, I don't know information about the person, but I understand where that person was coming from. And I need to help you understand where that person was coming from. And that initiated a whole, you know, first, I think he worked with the FBI. And then he even started working with the Anti-Defamation League and talking to, to Jewish audiences about what gives rise to these kinds of ideologies. Um, and now, and I guess this is kind of the, you know, like the concrete thing, if you want to go yeah. there, like to share with this episode, he actually both he and Jesse are part of this. It's called the Against Violent Extremism Network. This is unbelievable to me. It's a searchable database of former violent extremists. You can literally search for the kind of violent extremism you're looking for so that you can find someone who a former extremist who can then talk to current extremists or at least or their families and basically help people exit lives of extremist violence because they they can speak to they were there they can speak to you know who they are coming from and kind of like make the bridge to where they have come to and yeah that it's just it's unbelievable to me that something like that even exists but that's basically what they have made themselves both Frank and Jesse and the others who are a part of it made themselves available for is available for people who are still in those ideologies to even just kind of explore or experiment or conceive of the possibility of moving in a new direction yeah which yeah. which gets back to this question of when is someone ready you know how 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 can their path change sooner before <laughs> the violent act, I, you know, I yeah, I don't I don't know if I have a an like a a specific answer to that question, but certainly like making making it possible, making it available for them. Um, I don't know if the Against Violent Extremism Network has like an anonymous hotline or something, you know, where you don't have to like, I I, I yeah, I don't know, but at least having that. Be and I don't know how it's promoted. 
And actually, here's a kind of a, a similar example. Are you familiar with Footsteps? No. It's an organization, and I do not want to equate these things at all, but just kind of an, a, a, an analogy in the sense that <laughs> now I'm almost hesitating, but it's an organization that helps uh, Orthodox Jews explore the possibility of leaving the Orthodoxy. That's really all it is. And I don't know how they promote themselves, but even just knowing that there's somewhere you can go, maybe it's anonymous or the person doesn't have to know you, where you can even just dip your toe in the water of change. Just see how it feels. Try it on. Like, don't have to commit to anything. Don't have to, like, change your public identity about it yet. But, yeah, I mean, I, I often, it's like, if we're going to ask people to jump ship, we need to give them a ship to jump to. So to the extent that there can be ships out there, that is helpful. I'm Lauren Schiller, dipping my toe in the water of change with Stephanie Lepp, host of the podcast Reckonings, a show about how people change their hearts and minds. Coming up, Stephanie shares what she learned from a sexual abuse survivor and her perpetrator, who managed to work through it using restorative justice. Well, let's play a clip from another episode. Um, This is episode 21, A Survivor and Her Perpetrator Find Justice. For this one, you pose the question, what does it sound like for a survivor to get her needs met? And what does it sound like for a perpetrator to take responsibility for his sexual abuse of power? Before we even play the clip, I'm curious, how how did you get answers to these questions? How did you find these people who are willing to talk to you? Oh, yeah. So I was looking for them for a long time. I knew I wanted to find a perpetrator and survivor of sexual assault who managed to work through it using restorative justice because I just felt like that's what we weren't hearing. Like we weren't and and would be really helpful to hear the voice of a survivor who got her needs met and the voice of a perpetrator who actually, you know, graciously, skillfully takes responsibility for his sexual abuse. And so I just reached out to and bugged all the you know, practitioners of restorative justice for sexual violence that I could find, which, by the way, the fact that that's even a job that people have is amazing to me that that's like some people's job, what they do for a living. Um, but I so I reached out to as many of you know these practitioners as I could find. And um, someone named David Carp kept my name and got back to me a year later and said, I, I think I found your guests. Well, let's hear this clip. It starts off with, um, so you, you've given names to these people. These are not their real names. Yes, these are pseudonyms. They gave themselves their okay. pseudonyms. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, so so just introduce us to who these people are. Anwin and Samir, yeah. So Anwin and Samir met freshman year. Uh, Samir was, you know, into Anwin, and they started kind of seeing each other a little bit, but then Anwin kind of blew him off and... And one night they ended up at the same fraternity party, which is when Samir convinced Anwin to come home with him and then coerced her into sexual activity. So that was freshman year. And then their senior year, and, you know, you're going to have to listen to the episode to find out what happened between freshman year and senior year, but their senior year, Anwen invited Samir into a process of restorative justice. And 
just as a, you know, restorative justice basically is a response to crime that engages offenders and victims in repairing the harm that was caused. So Onwin invites Samir into this process. And I also want to be really clear that in this episode, we hear from both Onwin and Samir, although in this clip, we're only going to hear from Samir. And so this is kind of in the middle of the restorative justice process. This is right after Samir reads Onwin's written testimony of what happened that night. I thought in my brain I had asked her to take her shirt off. I didn't. I told her. Um, I I did not remember emotionally manipulating her to coming back to uh, to staying with me. I I thought from my perspective I was being a potential like teacher when it came to like oral sex. Turns out I was basically coercing her into doing this, even though she wasn't comfortable. Like, I, uh, from my end, I was like, oh, like, this was just fun hookup. But then from her end, this, like, this guy is, like, pushing himself on me. And um, it didn't sound like me. It sounded like a monster. But that was the hardest part was that, like, this this guy who forced himself onto this girl is me. I think it was a combination of desperation, validation, wanting to finally get the girl that I've been after forever. I wanted to have fun and run around and just have a bunch of sex because like that's what I thought college was. Now I wish I could just go back and talk to the kid and just be like, hey dude, like you're coming, your heart's maybe in a good place right now, but here's some things you need to know before you start engaging in sexual activities with other people that will prevent a lot of pain. You're a larger guy. You can't, you can't just go ahead and like ask things and then like expect like people not to be intimidated by it. Like, if it's not an enthusiastic yes, don't do it. Uh. I've made it very difficult for her to enjoy many parts of intimacy. I absolutely terrified her for years just by being around. She would spend every day, or at least once at some point, almost every day, trapped in that, that night and, and, and basically reliving it. And she's had to think about it every single day. Um, and I'm not sure if the wounds are all the way healed. I, I doubt they are, but um, um, I, uh, it's a 
pain that I can't take away no matter what I do. I, I can't take that away. And I know I've said it a thousand times, but I, I am sorry. I've listened to that so many times, and me every too. time it just gets me. Me the too. Same. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So me too. What I mean, what was your? Me too. Har har. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> um, I mean, what was your takeaway from what they went through, and what other what people who are listening to this could take away too? <sighs> I mean, well, first of all, it's just so refreshing to finally hear a man. You know, take responsibility and do it in a, it's not, it's not, he did kind of at first get a little stuck in this woe is me thing, which is not, this isn't about you. You can't get too stuck in self-pity because then you're not actually helping the other person. You know, so this isn't, it's not just about hearing someone kind of like grovel and it's, 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 it's see clearly what they did and then be inspired by it. Like take that as, as. I don't know if inspiration, but yeah, as motivation to help and to heal and to and to for Samir to, you know, work on this issue in particular. And so it's it's just it's really refreshing to to hear a man do that gracefully. And it actually sounds. I mean, that's part of what I feel like my job here is is to make it sound more stunning, more powerful, more manly. I could say to take responsibility. And to, let's say, even be like also just communicate around sexual intimacy, you know, in an open and mature way than to do the other thing where, you know, we're just kind of like aloof and like don't know how we affect other people or maybe don't care about that. Like I, I I'm part of my goal here is to make it sound more beautiful and powerful and sure manly to to do what he did. And it does actually sound beautiful and powerful to to take a look in the mirror and grow from what we see. You know, in kind of the bigger picture of social change and, you know, being convinced that there's a better way forward, um, you know, if we if we think things are going awry, say, I don't know, with our society at this moment, <laughs> and, you know, people who are, you know, who we might not agree with on you know, a whole host of issues from the political on down to the biological, let's say. <laughs> um, they think they're right and they don't need to change. And we think we're right and we don't need to change. And finding a way to open the conversation and communication, it, it, you know, feels like the hardest task of all. Mm. So, you know, in terms of the kinds of things that you've learned from having you know, hearing these stories, these stories of change, I mean, is there kind of an, an anatomy of change uh, or, you know, or, or a way to take these this personal change and think about it in terms of how does that scale how does to that scale? social change? Yeah, and that's kind of precisely what I'm playing with here, right, is the relationship between personal and social change. You know, this idea that, you know, big change out there in the world can start in here, you know, inside of us. And, and, and that therefore we can we can be the change. But how does that actually happen? You know, what does that actually mean? Well, um, we can look at these episodes as examples. You know, how how does Samir's personal change translate into social change? You know, it's one less 
like dude, you know, who's just kind of going around, you know, engaging in sexual activity in kind of a mindless way. And one more mindful dude who has done this thing and has really learned from it and grown from it and can talk to other men about it. Uh, You know, Frank, it's one less, you know, one less white supremacist and one more, you know, advocate who can talk to people who still live lives of violence and, and, and can also kind of help us understand where he was coming from and where people are coming from and what would speak to them. So, so part of it is, let's say, growing the cadre of, of, of advocates or allies, you know, and these people are, are kind of like uniquely effective advocates because they are kind of these bridge people. Like Samir can speak to guys. He's a young guy, you know. Frank was 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 a leader in the movement. He can so part of it is growing the the team. And, you know, I tend to think about things in terms of power. And you know, we all have the power to change ourselves, you know, but some of us have more power in this world than others and put crudely their personal change would therefore translate into, you know, even broader social change like I I you know, so there have been guests of mine, you know, for example, who have a lot of influence. So let's say for- former Congressman Bob Inglis made a really dramatic shift on climate change. He has a lot of power. And so his personal reckoning, you know, ha- had that, that, that much more kind of social impact. Um, Jerry Taylor was a prominent, he was kind of like the spokesperson for climate skepticism. And his transformation also can lead to so. So when I think about like my wish list of guests, you know, I I, I kind of think about you know like who are the fewest number of people that if they had a personal reckoning, that would lead to the biggest social change. You know, like what if Charles Koch had a reckoning? But that's still kind of coming from the how does personal change lead to social change. We can also kind of think in the other direction. Like how does how does social change translate into into personal change? Like how does or should the experience of participating in social change kind of change us as individuals when we have participated or when I have participated in active activism and social change? Has it made me more angry? Has it made me more compassionate? Has it made me more hopeful? You know, like how how does even engaging in social change or how do, how do we want it to kind of change us personally? Have you heard from any of the people that you've spoken with? Well, you know how you can kind of like feel a cold coming on, uh-huh. you know, like you get a little tickle in the throat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, have they ever talked about feeling a change coming on or like, <laughs> like a, you know, like, you know, whether it's like a mental or a physical sign that I am about to think about something differently and what like how do you recognize that I love that question I don't I've never heard a guest say that and there are also for some people they hit a rock bottom and clearly something needs to change when a, a white supremacist I interviewed a while ago he hit a point where he said either he he was sitting on a over a bridge with a gun in his hand and he said either I'm going to kill myself now or I'm going to change for for other people, um, there's also kind of a house of cards thing that happens where, because a lot of the um, a lot of our ideas are kind of like interconnected or 
held up by each other. And so once you start dismantling one thing, the entire house of cards just comes crashing down. So there was a, a young man I interviewed who, he was in the military, he fought in Afghanistan, he, and he became a conscientious objector. And once he started dismantling his ideas about the military and war, all of a sudden, his ideas about religion, politics, everything came crashing down. So sometimes there's a there's also just a like an initial change that is kind of like a, I don't know, canary in the coal mine or kind of like a sign that more change is coming. A third thing I'll say is there are also we kind of create opportunities for ourselves, or at least we can for. I'm thinking specifically of Yom Kippur in particular is my favorite Jewish holiday. It's a holiday that where you basically take a day to fast and reflect on how you affect other people and how you want to affect other people. And thank God, you know, I could definitely use that once a year. It's really helpful. Thank you, God. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that, I mean, that that's kind of like planting opportunities for change in your life. So maybe it's not like I can feel it coming on like a cold, but I at least want to make a little space in my life for it to happen if, if it needs to happen. And it probably does need to happen on a somewhat regular basis throughout my life with intention. So what, so I mean, what, what have you learned? <laughs> what are the lessons that you have learned from all of these stories that I, you're gathering? Yes. I, so I used to have this, this extremely unscientific list of things that I thought radically transformed people. So, you know, falling in love, near-death experiences, psychedelics, uh, rarely, sometimes, but very rarely information, because we usually just trust information that confirms what we already believe. And real, what, from what I have seen from the hours and hours of talking to people who have made transformative change, it's not that those things make us change. What those things have in common, or what they do, is that they they reveal to us the difference between who we think we are and who we actually are, or the difference between the impact we think we're having on the world and the impact we are actually having on the world. And it's, it's really, it's, it's seeing that difference, it's seeing that gap, that is what initiates the process of transformation. Well, what's the best advice that you've ever been given about how to change? How to change myself? Yeah. What's coming up for me is a quote by a philosopher named Ken Wilber, which is, any good theory helps you get to a better one. So to kind of just treat where I am, what, what I believe as kind of the provisional on my way to where I'm, it's not the like end all be all. I haven't like figured it out. You know, it's just the like next step. It's the what's going to help me keep moving forward in my pursuit of, you know, unimaginable happiness, joy, understanding, peace, love, all of it. So yeah, to just treat what, what I believe now or where I'm at now as the as provisional and part of the, the movement forward. I'm not all like peace, love, compassion, always, you know, I'm a promiscuous, pragmatic pluralist. I 
you know, like within the context of restorative justice, restorative justice and traditional criminal justice are not mutually exclusive. You know, just because someone is sitting in jail doesn't mean they can't work to repair the harm that they caused somebody else. So people should endure the consequences that are appropriate to whatever they did. And, you know, if we're also interested in having people also learn from and grow beyond what they did, well, then restorative justice is really helpful. But this isn't like, it's not like compassion or consequences. It's all of the above, under the right circumstances, in pursuit of our collective liberation. We have the punishment thing down. Like, we know how to do that in this country. The, like, actually then learning from the thing we did, that's the thing that we, like, haven't totally engaged. And that was Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. You can find Inflection Point wherever you listen and at inflectionpointradio.org. And speaking of amazing podcasts, let me also turn you on to Neighbors, a show about what connects us. From street musicians to barbers to improv comedians to recovering gunshot victims, Neighbors hosts Jacob Lewis and Cariad Harmon work their storytelling magic to show us our common humanity. You can find Neighbors wherever you listen and at neighborspodcast.com. And finally, you can find Reckonings wherever you listen and at reckonings.show. You can find me on Twitter at Steph Lepp, and you can support my work on Patreon at patreon.com slash Steph Lepp. If you made it all the way here, wow, and thank you.